This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 12, Museum Peace, with Brian Fife, Jim Fingal, and Tom Westberg. Hello, Game Theory Podcast. Hello, Thomas Westberg. What up? Eh, not much. What have you been playing? <laughs> Me? Zero. Mostly actually just reading. Books? Who does that? Yes, yes, books. Some of them computer language books, but so, so. You mean it's something that's not the internet that you can you can read? Well, it's usually Kindle. I mean, I, <laughs> as long as the internet is somehow involved, right? Don't don't get me wrong. There's very little of this this paper stuff anymore. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been slaving over uh, my letterpress games with Brian. Oh, he's kind of vicious. I. Uh, Jim's Jim's kind of vicious, I have to say. <laughs> oh, good. I'm happy. I just uh, I just invited you to another one, man. Oh boy, let the, let the beatings continue. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing that, and I actually got a couple of the games for this podcast. I I had never played Mist before. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it's been re-released on various platforms, uh, including yes. the iPad. I bought I bought Passage on the iPhone and was playing that uh, today. <laughs> yeah, there's probably not a real use case for Passage on on the uh, on the iPad. I think that's uh, it's pretty much designed for a smaller screen. So this is the Game Theory Podcast. This is episode twelve, and uh, what are we going to call this one? Museum piece? Game theory theory. <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Jim? Well, uh, MoMA acquired a uh, 14 video games, and I saw the list, and, and I thought, what a great way for us to be timely to take this list of video games, sort of think about you know what it was about each of these games that made it interesting and unique. You know, what does it mean to uh, f- for a place like MoMA to collect? a game and put it in their collection and, you know, sound really smart talking about all these things. And then of course, MoMA comes out and answers all of those things for us on their blog post. but we're going to pretend that didn't exist. Even if it did exist, uh, the things that we could come up and say about it would be, you know, profound and, and perhaps expand upon it. So what was your initial reaction to, to seeing the list of games that, that they picked? The list of games were Pac-Man, Tetris, Another World, Mist, SimCity 2000, Vib Ribbon, The Sims, Katamari Demarcy, Eve Online, Dwarf Fortress, Portal, Flow, Passage, and Cannibalt. Now, now Tom, do you have any initial reactions after seeing this list? How how'd you feel about it? Was something missing? My or? my first reaction was, wow, I, I did not know there was so much nonviolence in video games. <laughs> I suppose I could say not that there's anything wrong with that, but it certainly didn't feel representative of video games that I have known them as, I'll, I'll admit, a male video gamer. So you could, you could go back to, to Pac-Man, the first on the list. And one of the, the things that was 
considered important about Pac-Man at its time was that it was nonviolent and it appealed to women. And in fact, it was because of that that they, uh, in the United States, did Ms. Pac-Man as a, well, uh, you could say it was a cynical exploitation, but it was a successful one. Uh, going, going through the rest of these, almost none of them, you, you probably the most directly violent game I could find on here would be Eve Online, which at least has space battles. Epic, epic wars. Yeah. What you're calling out is it's less a, a list like an individual might uh, have their history of video game playing be defined by. Like to me, it, it, it certainly jumped out with seeing things like, like flow and passage in there alongside mist and whatnot that, you know, struck, struck me as a, a list that was sort of consciously trying to grab different types of games that, that did something particularly different or that, you know, it's, it's being acquired into a, a, a design collection. It seemed like some of the choices were particularly chosen for, for design or aesthetic reasons. I mean, flow, jumps out as something that uh, someone who's into interaction design or ambient music or these other related art forms without a huge background in video games or video game history, this might be very appealing to them as, as something that's both relatable in, in the way that it's easy to play and sort of understand what it's doing, but also relatable as in you can place it in a, in a context of, uh, similar non-video game artworks. All, everything you said, though, just causes Eve to sta- stick out even worse, like a, a sore thumb in that list. Well, yeah, well, and, and Eve, to me, is interesting in a different way. I mean, my whole playing of, of Eve was, it was colored both by my discussing it with you, but also, so I read this book, it's, I definitely recommend it, called This Gaming Life uh, Travels in Three Cities by Jim Rasignol. And one of the cities he goes to, I think, was Reykjavik, and he talked a lot about his love-hate relationship with, with Eve. Uh, and about how a lot of the, the love part of it was this theoretical aspect of how interesting it was that the game existed and that people spend their their time doing the things that they do in the game. Similar to, I think, why perhaps SimCity was on the list. It's something where there there are goals, but people come up with their own emergent goals. Certainly, I think Dwarf Fortress and Eve, for the majority of people, it's a much more interesting game to talk about than to play. Yeah, where it, it's it's something that it's also, I mean, interesting. What it would mean to show Eve in a museum setting is that what's interesting about Eve is the the scale of the world and also how much time people sink into it, uh, which is similar to probably Dwarf Fortress with the the detail of the world and also just how what's interesting about it might arise after weeks or months of playing it. That seems difficult to me to to explain to somebody in a museum setting uh, that that it's clearly not apparent from the graphics you would see on a screen. Yeah, with SimCity or The Sims, you can look at that and go, oh, look, that's you know a house or that's a city. But with Dwarf Fortress, it just looks like the computer crashed. There's a bunch of garbage on the screen. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's, I mean, one of the topics that 
we wanted to discuss were, you know, what, what do we think about just displaying uh, these games in a museum setting and, you know, what, what are, might the difficulties of that be or, you know, what, what, what might it miss? I think for me, two of the big things are, are time and also context. I mean, time, so we talked about a lot of the, the meaning and interestingness of, of these games. I mean, a lot of them, I'm sure the Sims, SimCity, Myst, uh, come from playing hours and hours and hours of it and what, what comes out at, at the end of that or in the middle of that. Uh, but also games like Passage, a museum displaying something, a museum is a public space and you're experiencing the game in a, a public context. Whereas for me, and I imagine for a lot of people, playing video games is a very inter- interior thing. Uh, so I generally play single player games, avoid crowds. A lot of my experience of, I mean, my experience of a game like Passage was something where I was sitting and there was no world around me. There was no one, you know, waiting in line to, to play the game. And I was experiencing it as a sort of direct connection between me and in the game or, or the design, which seems like that would be difficult to have in a museum setting. Some of these games, you can look at them and say that they are clearly graphically interesting or, or even pretty, like Flow and Mist for its time. Cannibalt is simplistic but interesting to look at. But others, as you say, Dwarf Fortress... Perhaps they're they're looking at it for its stark simplicity and finding the inner computerness uh, of, of it or, or something. Many of them are are just lots of splashes of color. Katamari Damacy is a fascinating looking game, very crude graphics by modern standards, although very colorful and so forth. But I I, I have a hard time looking at it as uh, representative of art. When they talked about the games they had chosen, they also listed a number of games that they wanted to have but didn't. And, and that actually rounds out the list a little better. The list includes Space Invaders, Asteroids, Donkey Kong, Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, My Beloved NetHack, Street Fighter 2, uh, and Mario 64. You know, just adding those address, you know, adds a little bit of rationality to the list as far as like, oh yeah, the classics are there now. And the classics of like different forms, like Street Fighter Two, having a a fighter game. I think Chrono Trigger is also in there. There's a lot represented from early games as historical objects, but also things that came to be representative of a particular genre, or you know, not necessarily the most complex form, but maybe an example of something that might be seen as like the, the apex of the form. I mean, when we're talking about this, we're we're sort of falling into the the idea of they like MoMA museum people what they were thinking of coming up with this list but from the the press release that makes it clear that coming up with a list was a collaboration with you know people outside of the museum uh, particularly people from Kill Screen magazine so you have people who are definitely very into games also into culture uh, sort of at the intersection of those things uh, interfacing with people from MoMA to, to come up with uh, these lists. So that brings a little bit of the insider to the choice, though, you know, we could theorize as well about what we think the people from Kill Screen, their, their perspective on the game. What would you, you think is missing? Hmm. 
Yeah, I've been focusing on thinking about the games that were there more than was missing. My favorite artistic game that I'm, I'm sad is not there is Okami. Yeah, well, I've Counter Strike, maybe, um, or a, well, any kind of a real serious shooter. Like there wasn't a single serious shooter in the list. I would even accept Halo. You know, as a oh, that's super, true. Super polished example of that. Form. There really isn't an FPS here, is there? No. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there, there gets to be in the extended list. You know, Street Fighter Two, which is there's fighting involved in that. But the amount of time that people have sunk into Counter Strike is is just as interesting to me as the amount of time that uh, people have sunk into Eve. Even more so because it's like it's such a limited and proscribed environment. Similarly, the the idea of, of something like Doom, the early on, you can tell I'm actually thinking about these things because I'm I'm stumbling over my words. But <laughs> uh, Doom, the early on uh, internet aspect of that is an interesting part of the history of interaction design, right? Where not only is it something that you're playing with people over the internet, but it's a combative, competitive uh, thing that you're doing. <laughs> Well, and I would understand why StarCraft isn't there, but it, you know, something at least to consider. The other thing that would be fun from a look at the way that games have evolved, you know, kind of gee whiz sense is one of these bullet hell games. You get some footage of a top level player playing one of these games with the, you know, three quarters of the screen is, um, covered with bullets and they're threading the needle. That would be, it'd be something to see. Yeah. Well, it's some sort of twitchy game. None of the games that were chosen. I mean, Cannonball. You're there's one button and you're pressing it fast. But none of the games, other than maybe Tetris and very fast levels, are are games that strike me as games that inspire virtuosic performances. Yeah, I mean, I like Cannonball because it is a great example of a retro-looking game that actually has a lot of high-end graphic stuff going on under the covers, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that anybody could walk up to and play. You know, it's good for that reason. Yeah, that's part of the part of the reason it was designed. It was designed done by Adam Atomic, who came up with the Flixel Flash video game framework. I saw a video of him in the advertising material for Indie Game the Movie, which they promise will be in my enhanced DVD that I will receive sometime in 2014. About how the the design goals for that was to. To make a game that, that like literally anyone could play, there's one button, very approachable. Like how much can you get out of that? How interesting of, of a game can you get with, with one button? Hackman is pretty good in that direction too. Granted, it's a joystick, but it's a one-handed game. And it does actually speed up to something that's pretty challenging if you don't play it as a memorization game. Twitch games that inspire virtuosic performances – there's also something about that that's very inaccessible to people that's maybe not not that attractive a category to uh, to collect in in a, in a list like this. I doubt the museum people actually could understand what's going on when they see somebody playing Defender. Right, well, but, but I mean you said Pac-Man, one of the reasons why you thought Pac-Man might, might be on the list or one, one of the things that was said about it is that it was very accessible and it, it opened up the, uh, video games to, to women and people who don't usually play, you know, in 1980 weren't usually playing games. And I think, I mean, other games on the list, I mean, certainly the, the Sims falls in that category as well. A, a game that, that my partner has fond memories of, of playing actually, you know, started out 
fun fun factoid started out as a uh, an architectural simulation uh, in which the 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 sim people were a minor aspect of it until they realized that that people had more fun playing with the sim characters. Uh, but that's definitely something that uh, is not a not an aggro game and one that had a very large female audience. I mean, Warlords would be a great game to have uh, on in this exhibit. Warlords? Can you give some background about Warlords? Warlords is a basically a four-player breakout game where you control a paddle that, that protects your castle. And so you sort of have four people that are bouncing the puck back and forth and taking shots at each other. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's an example of both a, a classic game but also a game that involves a group, right? Where a lot of these games are single-player games. I mean, obviously, other than EVE, which is massively multiplayer... Pretty much all the other ones are games that an individual interacts with. Part of the, the the StarCraft FPS thing that feels like is missing is a big part of games is that social and competitive aspect of it. Right. Com- competition is pretty much stripped out of this. Well, that, that said, I, I, I certainly understand and, and potentially agree with the decisions of these curators like for their first go at doing a video game exhibit. Staying away from the headshot <laughs> genre. No, no Mortal Kombat. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I mean, if if part of the goal of it is to highlight, is to open the open up this this area of art and design to people who might not appreciate this, because I mean, this isn't for people who are really into video games because they already know about them. You, you don't need museum to collect that. It's it's something to display and explain it to people who aren't already experts at this. A very valid choice to, to, to start out and maybe have as your errata the, the, the really difficult or uh, objectionable games. But, I mean, something like Pac-Man or, or Flow, these things that, you know, less exemplify what people actually do when they play <laughs> games and more exemplify these aspects, these theoretical aspects that they want to bring out with aesthetics, different modes of behavior, treatment of space, you know, treatment of time, things like that. Yeah, I mean, if if you're trying to build an exhibit that basically challenged people's perceptions of what games were, you you do it from games like Flow. But that that's of course what they're they're doing. They're challenging perceptions of what games are. They're not doing a history of games. It's it's a museum as art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Museum is squeaky toy. One of the things that, that jumped out at me as soon as I saw this list was a reminder to myself again of the extreme difficulty that we all accept as given, I guess, of archiving games, of dealing with games. How could you possibly create, you know, the experience of Eve for the players in, in a vacuum, you know, 10 years from now? It's, it's almost impossible. Just as meaningful, I think, to the serious players, there's also this evolution of the game that takes place that, that is really important in forming the culture of the way the game exists. So all the, battle scars that people got, all the, the don't touch this, it's hot kind of reactions that they learn from the old buggy version of the game often tends to persist into the culture of the mature game that's, that's changed quite a lot. Well, it seems like some of those things certainly could be displayed and highlighted, but not through showing the game in real time. There needs to be some sort of translation. Like I can imagine displaying those things by having a film version of highlights of the games and 
people's reaction to them or people talking about the game, bringing in some of the interpretation and the human element of it more than just, you know, what they can do with passage where they just put it up on a screen and someone, people line up and play it because it takes five minutes. Yeah. I mean, you almost sort of want to show somebody a, a gussied up version of dot land. If you want to explain to them what Eve is about dot land is um, a website that somebody's made Eve maps dot dot land dot net that can give you a real time picture of what's going on in the Eve universe right now. So you can see for any sector how many ships have been blown up in the last couple hours, um, you know, pirate activities, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, I mean, that sort of visualization, I mean, it's like walking into Google and seeing the, the rotating globe with the little pixels of Google queries happening in, in the world. It, some sort of visualization like that, I think, certainly would give an idea of the, the scope of the game. Listen, there are, you know, 10,000 people or whatever that are playing right now and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Give, give people really a sense of the vastness of this game and then do some documentary work that talks to, you know, about how important it is and the, the pitiful lives of the, <laughs> the hardcore Eve players. I say this jokingly. And like the, the really exemplary lives of the people who, who dipped their toe into Eve and, and then quickly re- retracted it. it uh, I still you know, want like, like, like you or I. Yeah, like like us. I still want to play that game. I they, they send me the emails. I'm tempted, but the idea of the game will always be so much better than the reality of playing it. <laughs> yeah, you should you should read that the this game in life that I feel like you would you would you would see a mirror to yourself in it. <laughs> Very good. In a way, when we look at this list chosen by the MoMA people we're sort of uh, the wrong sorts of people to to critique it because the the very concept behind this podcast has us discussing history and uh, rules and theory and what makes games fun or interesting and so forth entirely as games. But they are looking for things to study the presence and the aesthetic parts of it and how they are kinetic. So we're using lots of fairly artistic terms to to describe games. And I don't see much in here that describes advancing the state of the art, which we talk about, or fun, which we talk about. Yeah, though, I've, I mean, I would push back a little bit. And certainly to me, a lot of what's interesting about indie games and these games that push the boundary of the state of the art uh, is and are those aspects uh, which reach out and do interesting things in these categories that are translatable to to the fields of design or interaction design or things that people in other industries like architecture or whatnot think about with with space and in time uh, certainly the at the at the core of that there's this you know what is a game what is what is fun uh, what is that that keeps us coming back the bright magma core of of what keeps us going i can say f- for me i'm definitely interested in in seeing the write ups just as i'm interested in reading academic works on uh, on games uh, not so much to tell me how i should be experiencing them but to maybe enhance my experience a little bit, to to think about it in a way that someone who's an expert in another field might might see it. You know, one one of the things as a side note that they mentioned in the write up, and this is to their credit, was that they're really focused on 
getting source code to the games, understanding the difficulties of getting an emulator. I think that may have also influenced the list that they initially have launched with. You know, they may not have been able to get Nintendo to come to the table yet. Yeah, and, and that's actually super interesting to me, the idea that that they're acquiring the source code because, you know, we initially saw this as like, you know, what does it mean to acquire a video game? How are they going to display it? How is this something they're going to do into perpetuity? But the, the idea that they're both, you know, acquiring the games, acquiring the systems, but also going to the depths of acquiring the source code, which in their press announcement, they, you know, explicitly say it's like so that we'll be able to translate this in, in the future and continue to make this available, uh, even after the original technology becomes obsolete. That definitely, you know, speaks to me of the, the seriousness of the endeavor in which they're undertaking. There's also the practical problem of if, you know, we've seen what kind of condition these game kiosks end up in, the ones that are hardened today, you know, exposing a museum public audience to old fragile consoles is is not a winning combination. Yeah. (laughs) Jim, why don't we talk about who's played which of these games? Have we, have we played, has anybody played all of these games? As of uh, as of the planning of this, I've only not played Vib Ribbon. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I oh no, that's a lie. I haven't played Door Fortress. That, that that shame on you. How about you, Tom? Uh, I I've probably played fewer than half of them. To my to my great shame, I actually have another world on my computer. It's like one of those games I've always been meaning to play, and I haven't gotten to it. I haven't played Katamari. That's it. Katamari's good. Vib Ribbon. Vib Ribbon, of course. Yeah, Vib Ribbon is... The, Vib Ribbon seems like an Vib odd Ribbon choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, it seems like an odd choice. Like, it must... Well, I, I feel like if it had a cult following, I would have heard of it. I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, maybe I'm speaking too much for my perceived, my perceived like, knowledge and experience in video game culture, but the fact that I had never heard it mentioned until this list makes it seem very idiosyncratic because, you know, just talking to people, people who play many different kinds of video games and them talking about their memories of games. So, you know, for example, I never played Homeworld or System Shock, but but I know that, you know, they exist and, and what they are and their impact on people. But vibrant. I also don't understand it because it doesn't seem that interesting graphically. Well, I, I don't think, well, so I'm going to step in here. It makes perfect sense to me. I don't think it was even released in the United States. I'm, I'm reading the write-up here. But the reason why they picked this one is because it was one of the legitimate firsts in a genre, which was the first game that takes your music and turns it into a game, that kind of thing. A lot of what they're, yeah, a lot of the things in the list are firsts, right? And and they are they're historical things. Aren't but they? no, they, I mean, SimCity 2000 is not a first. That's for sure. I, I really don't. I, I I actually this is not a. These were turning points in video game technology or. Uh, ideas, uh, type of list. Yeah, though, though something like, I mean, I think of, like, Mist. There, Mist did some things f- for the first yes. time. It, it, it was definitely Mist was, was an interesting, if not first, as a puzzle game, bringing those, those pretty slides in and, and moving from one to another was not, had not been done before. It was, uh, Stretching the bounds of CD game technology. Yeah, and and even something like Flow, there's something different about that too. With the you know the zero 
zero HUD ambient. Uh, well, Flow was a coming out of that game company. That was their first, at least their first notable or widely widely played release, right? Yeah, there was. I mean, before that, there was Flower, but Flow. No, Flower came was, after Flow. Flower came after Flow, really. Yeah. Oh, there was Clouds before that, but that was a student game. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and Flow was also it was you know public on the internet uh, before it was on PlayStation. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's <laughs> after that little bit. Yeah, of for, for for rhythm games, I, I mean certainly for rhythm or music games, it's difficult to look at that if you cared about breakthroughs to to not say Guitar Hero beat it. If you wanted something pretty. I'd say something like Pulse. Yeah, but they, you know, maybe they could get this. That, that's another piece of it. Well, that's very mercenary. Well, I mean, it's ultimately that's what it comes down to. It doesn't it matter fit our budget. <laughs> well, <laughs> Pac-Man. Yeah, I still, I have, despite my age, I, uh, I have a good friend who missed Pac-Man. Is still his favorite game. Yeah, it, it has I, the enduring legacy. I. Uh, you know, part of this is p- perhaps just uh, personal loyalty to the the people involved in Ms. Pac-Man. I always preferred Ms. Pac-Man to Pac-Man, but part of that really was because Ms. Pac-Man had the randomization element to it, and I I didn't like the idea of just memorizing a pattern. Well, Ms. Pac-Man was a pinnacle of sort of taking everything that was developed in Pac-Man and putting a a mirror polish onto it by expert craftsmen. Who are good looking and talented. <laughs> and we happen to know. And Tetris was, was interesting. The, in, in the list, the factoid about that was, you know, unsurprising once I, I read it, but the idea that Tetris is, is one of the few games that has like almost literally been ported to every video game platform there is. <laughs> Tetris is very much like Doom where that's, that's when you know that a, a platform has arrived is when the port shows up. Yeah, and the uh, I I don't think I I had actually seen the uh, the ASCII version of of Tetris that they have on they mean MoMA have on their their announcement. Yeah, it looks pretty hairy. <laughs> I did play a lot of the Game Boy version though. Oh yeah, that was the killer app for that, wasn't it? Yeah, that and uh, there was a Mario game that was really good. Are you talking about the crummy Nintendo one or the good Tengen one? The Tengen Game Boy? The Tengen version of Tetris. I think we're talking about the crummy Nintendo one. Uh, So were there multiple versions of Tetris for the Game Boy? There was. It turned out that uh, Atari had done the coin-up version of Tetris, and they thought they owned the rights to do it on other platforms. Somebody they talked to in Russia or whatever said, yes, you do. Just pay us royalties. Keep going. And so they... <laughs> Just got they, to check. You got it. No problem. <laughs> they, yeah, and they did the, the Game Boy version. But in the meantime, Nintendo went to them or somebody else or whatever and paid a bigger check and uh, got a court to say, no, no. At, at Atari and and their their console gaming division at that time was called Tengen uh, does not have rights to it and they actually made them recall and destroy them but uh, most people apparently felt that the the Atari version was far superior implementation there you go 
and then down down the list, Another World, which is available for iOS. It, it was called out as uh, being one of the first of its kinds of games. I mean, it's a platformer, but it's, it's lauded for being cinematic. And I will say that I, I was pretty surprised when I was playing it by, you know, of course, playing it in, in retro mode to try to get a sense of, of what it was like on the original uh, uh, the original graphics, but the it's a platformer. But but there are these like cutscenes where these like big you know polygon blobs that that are somehow extremely scary <laughs> appear. Or you're you're walking along and there's like a cut, if if you walk over, I mean, there's a particularly great like if you walk over these like poisonous worms. It like the whole the whole screen is is filled up by this like disgusting looking worm with with one tooth with with poison coming out of it that that slices against your leg and then you fall down and die. It's pretty awesome. There was really you know thinking of like the old Space Quest game. There were really some cinematic moments with these games that even though the graphics were terrible, we didn't know how bad they were because they were better than anything else we'd seen. What are other games that have like around? I guess 1991 that one could call more cinematic or when I read something like this stands out as, you know, a strikingly cinematic game for its time. I don't have that much to compare it to in my memory banks. So Monkey Island came out in 1990 and that had some pretty, well, speaking as someone who's played, who did not play in retro mode, it had some very cinematic scenes and the perspective changed all the time. And there was, I mean, Tom, would you agree? Uh, Except that the original Monkey Island was uh, for animation and so forth was was quite crude. Of course, I guess you could say that was would be would be true of uh, Another World. Well, having not played Another World, I mean, the sense that I take from that game is that they managed to not try too hard with the art style. Or something like that that really made it more tolerable. <laughs> the limited resources they were designing with, you know, they figured out how to paint with that brush really well. Right, and well, Monkey Island, of course, had the same sort of kind of have sixteen colors on the screen at a time type thing. It was for I guess it was originally a DOS game. For me, Monkey Island uh, stood out for its writing much more than than for its graphics. Although when I think about it. Actually, did a very good job with with those graphics of having nice little campfires, little flickering color, and so forth. Getting getting the idea across. And the next on the list is is Mist. And and Mist makes perfect sense to me. I mean that that was a that was a killer app for CD-ROM. It was mind blowing, coming from games that were that were there previously. It was one of the first games that I believe integrated video, and it certainly did so in a really elegant way. Um, I never really liked the game. Uh, Neither did I, but I agree that it belongs here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty hard. <laughs> you know, we talked about about walkthroughs and uh, the wikification of games. It still is pretty inscrutable. Nothing in the experience of me playing games that have come out since then have made me any better at playing games like this. <laughs> when it, it seems to, and I'm going to make stuff up because I don't my my recollection isn't so good. It misses this opportunity to do all the fun mini game like stuff for playfulness in the world that other successful games in this in this sort have done. You know, where the the world is fun because it's pretty, but the only things you can click on are quest related stuff. 
And it's a fairly somber, quiet game. Very desolate, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I'm, I mean, design. I'm interested because it's. I mean, it seems like. I mean, I'm I'm actually excited that you know I realized that Mist exists for iOS, uh, and you know probably in the next year or so I'll get to play The Witness, which seems like is. Uh, setting itself up to be the spiritual heir of Mist, being this this inscrutable puzzle island that, to me, will I, I expect will probably integrate in a lot more contemporary uh, sorts of puzzles or like or references or uh, design techniques. I'm excited that I'm going to play Mist, and I'll have that probably much more fresh in my mind than uh, other people might when I, when I get to play The Witness. I encourage you to, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, blow for president. Yeah. SimCity 2000. So I played SimCity for Super Nintendo. I think that's maybe the only SimCity I played. So what is awesome about SimCity 2000? What's different about SimCity 2000 is that SimCity was very tile-based, and SimCity 2000 was the first of those games that was extremely freeform. So you could you could paint any kind of zoning that you wanted to in the world. Um, SimCity 3000, 4000 came out, but they weren't really anything more than just more better. So it's a fine point to draw the line. And with Sims, the original SimCity, there wasn't that much you could really do with making your city look different. SimCity 2000, you can make a city have personality and have a, a very distinct appearance. So it's more a technical advance. That's right. And was there... Um I mean, when people talk about SimCity 2000, they talk about how uh, the freeform aspect of it, in which you you know you figure out what what you're doing. Um, I can't really remember is SimCity the original one more scenario or goal oriented. Uh, I mean, both of the games have the same purported like you know do missions and you know do scenarios. I, I don't think that's dramatically different. Uh, I could be wrong. I, I think it's more just like. The original SimCity really does show its age and show the limitations of, of you know, its construction, where SimCity 2000, while it looks old, still holds up. I mean, I've been playing a version of SimCity on the iPhone that's effectively SimCity 2000. It's fine. And let's just get, skip over Vibrim and, and, uh, and go straight into uh, talking about The Sims as an, uh, an outgrowth of SimCity 2000. They're not dolls. They're action figures. <laughs> similar to, to SimCity 2000, there's the it has a similar aspect of figure out how you want to play the game, but on on like a more micro scale than than the city. When from an inside baseball perspective, The Sims was when downloadable content or add-ons and expansions first really reared their ugly head in full corporate monstrosity. Having having only uh, briefly played it uh, on a friend's computer, thus allowing me to say that I've played it. So was it that in, in in the original one, or is that in later sequels? No, I believe it was right in the beginning. They you know sort of started chunking out all these expansions, pets and movie stars, and oh yeah, so it's it's not like not to the 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 level of selling individual items, but DLC like the download downloadable content aspect of adding just like a little bit more or, or skinning stuff. Yeah, the 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 original game had seven expansion packs and there were two different deluxe editions that had all the different packs included. 
Got to catch them all. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So this may have been one of the earliest franchises. Well, certainly it was. It was you know EA doing their thing. Right, Madden I think was earlier, and certainly is a bigger franchise. Oh, without a doubt, and that was the first kind of concept of an annual game. The Sims was more like you know we're going to drop a property and then just start just start carving out extra stuff and. You know, they got refined in the era of horse armor, but, but this was a, a real good first take on that concept. And it wasn't necessarily offensive. I mean, it was just like, yeah, you know, I'll spend 20 bucks more versus my $60 game and get a whole new dimension of crap to do. You get pets. Yeah, or new jobs or whatever it is. For, you know, all we talk about downloadable content, I mean, that's sort of also, I mean, it's not really episode based, but, uh, there is something nice about, about that that development of you really like a game they they couldn't fit everything in it and there's a way to continue to to have different interesting experiences in the same game that fundamentally the same game that you're playing there's a legitimate call for downloadable content where you get more than a full game's worth of content you know for less than the cost of a full game after a game is released and is very successful that's that's a decent thing to do you know launch day dlc is a whole different concept have both of you not played Katamari, or or was that? Um... Oh, I have played it, not not extensively, but enough to get a, a decent sense for it, its playfulness. What what impressed me even before playing it was just how how weird the story and the setup were. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like pretty psychedelic. I mean, the whole setup. It's sort of just very not American. To talk about the backstory, I don't know. Is it in there? The backstory in it is that I, I think you're like the the son or the yeah you're you're the son of the king of the cosmos who in a binge drinking spree uh, wiped out all the stars and celestial bodies from the sky and your your job as like the tiny son of the king of the cosmos is to roll around this katamari and pick up things and make the katamari really big so that you can put stars back in the sky. Which is which is great. <laughs> it's and it's such a, like a, a weird way to frame the actual thing that you're doing in the game. When having not played the game, I can say with great authority, you know, it is truly kind of a game with a lot of artistic concept that's a part of it. Uh, my unnamed good friend, who actually formerly worked for MoMA, this is one of the games that she really likes. <laughs> well, it's also just plain fun to run around and crushing and. Picking up stuff, a, a sense of you're in a fairly crudely drawn 3D world and rolling over stuff and, and adding it to your big snowball. And that's just sort of appeals to the destructive teenager in me anyway. Well, it definitely passes a, <laughs> it definitely passes a test of a game you could just walk up to that's just sitting there idle and, you know, grab the controller and start wanging it around and, enjoy it a lot right yeah i think in katamari we have we have found uh the ultimate intersection between uh, tom's game should just be fun and they they should be interesting works of design <laughs> bada bing we, we've talked about eve a fair amount you know the, the other aspect of eve that i just want to underscore is the guys that design the game are just great and I, I can imagine that you know just knowing that you could go to those guys and they, they'd totally be on board with supporting you I haven't heard that much about them. What's uh, Do you have a case study in mind? I Just looking at the way that they engage with the community, looking at the the way that they're open, that they pull 
influential community members into the game. I mean, just having, uh, again, dip my toe into the, the game world, I think it's something that you see right from the outset. They're just, they're decent people. Yeah. Community truly defines Eve in both positive and amazingly negative ways. It, I, I can't think of a game that has encouraged uh, such dramatically dramatic acts of of destruction and 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 disappointment, people betraying their their own guilds and so forth, in 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 a way that it certainly that has to be fascinating to anybody studying humanity. Well, Eve was one of the Eve was the first game company that hired an economist, right? It would make sense there. It it. It really is a lot about that sort of uh, those motivations. By the way, have you guys all read the story about how the Valve economist got hired? I think I have, but I, it's not fresh in my mind. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. It's it's unbelievably just a great just a great read. Uh, this is from the the Valve blog, which doesn't get posted too often, but when it does, you better read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what, what you're saying about the the creators, of, I get the sense that. People who play the unnamed MMO, I don't get the sense that players of that game feel the same love and affection for the creators. No, I mean other other you know trip other AAA game titles. I, I don't think that the creators are as accessible, and I don't think there's a there's a kind of culture of openness that they're at least trying to promote as much as they can. Where that's very much a factor in Eve. Just let it stand. Take it as truth. Let's move on to Dwarf Fortress. So I haven't played this, but I've you know we've talked about the great story of the cat starving people out right yeah i mean this is this is an example of a game that again you can sit and talk about for a long long time but i know a lot of people and i've sat down with them and talked about it and we, we've all just kind of said we wish we could play this <laughs> it says it's roguelike so i just assumed this was brian's game he it's, got it in it's there. only roguelike because it's ascii <laughs> gack yeah, I mean, there there is this whole, I think Minecraft falls into that category too, where it's like, I'm super interested in it, it's cool to see what people do with it, but there's too many different games that I want to play to to sink the time into it that would allow me to contribute on the same interesting level as what I could read about. Well, there's, there's also, I mean, there's this narrative element that comes into play for Dwarf Fortress that's very appealing. It's just a learning curve. I don't have enough faith in the game, even though I've heard many good things about it. I just don't have enough faith in the game to go through all that pain. I mean, the experience of getting the game to run on a Mac was not pleasant. <laughs> that in and of itself was a struggle. Yeah, well, and it's, it's closed source, but it's just a couple guys. I mean, we, we talked about in last episode this element of you know needing to have trust with indie developers to buy into what they're doing and, and take it on faith that it's all going to work out in the end. And I, there's no reason why I don't have that faith in, in the uh, Bay 12 games. There's no reason why, why I don't have faith in those guys, but I just, I just don't. Not even if there's a New York Times article about them? <laughs> Not even. I, I'm, I'm, that, I'm that blinded. I'm that, I'm that uh, biased. <laughs> Portal, we all love. Yay, it's a wonderful game. Next. Portal's the best. It's so good. Uh, we've also you know, kind of already had our flow love fest. I think you know whether it's a good game or not, we all agree that it's an interesting design. And the, despite all of Tom's uh, you know bitching and moaning, the 
the intent of the game designers, uh, that game company is very noble. And whether or not it results in successful games, it's it's a good effort. We're glad somebody's out there pushing that that angle, right? Allow me to put back in my little bit of cynical snark. Uh, Flow just strikes me as one of those art movies released just before Academy Awards season. So I'm not at all shocked it was well, on well, this the, list. The thing that's offensive to me about Flow is just the all the buildup around like it's just the best thing ever and it's so transformative. And I mean, it's it's interesting, but it's only really great if you read all the crap behind it. You know, it's it, just picking it up. You don't just intuitively like Ken to like how revolutionary and amazing it is. I mean, it's no journey. <laughs> don't get Tom started on journey. <laughs> Can't we just go back to portal? <laughs> journey is what uh, led me to, to download flow and flower. And that was all, I guess now a number of months ago, it was around, I think journey came out right before PAX East because I had people over to my house after many beers and, uh, and everyone was sitting around staring at people past the controller around to play journey. So, Tom, you've played Passage? Uh, no. You want to download it right now? <laughs> it's a five-minute game. Uh, Jim, what, what, you, what you, want, you want to live play it? Yeah, I, 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 was, I was curious about your take on this, Jim. I mean, because I, I sat down and played it this morning, then I read the artist's statement, but I'll let you speak first. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I like Jason Rohr a lot. I played it, you know, knowing what I was getting into, and uh, it... It had a uh, an effect on me. It's it's not a non obvious game. I mean, he in his artist statement he calls it a memento mori game. There are things about the experience of playing it that you don't really get in in other games. And the things that you do in the game, like you know, open treasure chests and 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 whatnot, and the way it treats them, for me it. I, I was I felt like I I was like maximally receptive to it when when I played it and those um, you know not super subtle all explainable in artist statement metaphors were were very resonant. I I sort of I almost think of it as like a like a good artist you know scribbling on a napkin or something. I mean it's it's clear that there's a lot going on there. The game itself I wasn't blown away by it and and some of the stuff in it was a little heavy handed. I love the concept of, spoiler alert, you know, partnering up with somebody and then realizing, oh, I can't fit through these places anymore. That's, that's, a, that's interesting. Uh, some of the other components of aging and blah, blah, blah were a little, 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 little overbearing for me, but I, I, I still recognize it as a good thing. And I don't think this is, you know, this guy's life's work. It was something he did. He was responding to an emotion and that really does kind of represent art in a sense to me, right? Yeah, and and the I mean the thing I was re- referencing with the treasure chest is just like the in all games you're trained to go get treasure chests and in this you hit a treasure chest and then there's like these fireworks and but then like nothing really happens. <laughs> so yeah, nothing like, changes. It's like why did I do that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think there's there may be some sort of count that uh, this is how much treasure you have, but the meaninglessness of of material acquisition. I think it would be interesting to sort of slip it in among a bunch of conventional games with somebody and sort of make them play it and and have them come to conclusions of why the game is what it is versus like this is a really great meaningful indie game that has a message and then play it and you're like, well, yeah, I guess it does. I'm not sure. For me, having it be primed as a meaningful indie game probably 
that's what allowed me to have a good experience with it. Whereas I think a lot of people who review it on on iTunes are like, this isn't a game. Like, I just like walked to the end and I died at the end. Like, they weren't. I think it requires a certain mindset to appreciate it that uh, you're not necessarily by default to have. Um, you know, just as if you went to the movie theater uh, expecting to watch the Avengers and and like the Seventh Seal came on or something like that. Uh, you might think it's boring. No, that's a fair point. And and again, I don't want to I don't want to imply that I didn't enjoy the game or I didn't think it was good. Um, I just wasn't moved by it, and I wanted to be. You played it this morning before this episode, and you were continually monitoring yourself to see whether or not you were moved, weren't you? I, I wasn't like in the dark room in the middle of the night, which probably would have helped. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's the. I mean the dif- the difficulty of of things like this is. I mean that that's a double edged sword of like the thing that you're you're going to be playing is meaningful and moving is on the one hand if you don't have that you're like I you know I think I'm going to play a game that I'm going to play for a couple hours and it's only 5 minutes but if you have that too much it's like all right it might be moved yet it might be moved yet yeah and the other thing is I I wasn't clear to me like that playing 20 times was going to open up new avenues of depth and understanding to the game I definitely got some of the things, at least, that he was trying to get across. Uh, you know, the old the old saw about a fine piece of art is that you just keep looking at it, and it, it continually kind of evokes new meaning or new understanding as you as you look at it and you think about it and go through different experiences in your life. And oh, suddenly I understand this better. And, and uh, I don't know. We're talking a long time about this game. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I like it a lot. I played it twice. One of the the inadvertently, you know, resonant and metaphorical parts of it was getting towards the end and having things be blurry and then having trying to go backwards in, in the game in a uh, an effort to see more of of the world or to see whether or not there were, you know, treasure chests that I had missed and and then having my character die in the act of, of walking backwards. I think that that's what jumped out. At me, yeah, maybe I just didn't spend enough time with it. And again, I, I don't want to detract from the fact that I think it's a it's a good thing. All right, we're almost at the end. Cannibal. We like Cannibal. It's a great game. I love it. And it's just a good fun game. See, it, it meets Tom's criteria with spades. it does. Yeah. I, I actually, if you if you wanted to talk about any of these games uh, that that I became emotionally attached to, that that stupid. Companion Cube in Portal. Boy, that <laughs> yeah. did me in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really looking out for you. It had a heart. It's weighted. Right, Tom, you talked about how you tried so hard not to incinerate it. I jumped into the stupid fire. <laughs> no, take me instead. First you will be baked, then there will be cake. <laughs> so um, that's the list. I think it's pretty good, guys. What do you think? Yeah, I think we we both theorized about it and then gave people who are looking at this list who are non-gamers a little peek into uh, uh, what they might mean to people who have played them. (laughs) There you go. Now, Tom, you've already said you haven't played a damn thing all week. Is that true? Aside from being slaughtered at letterpress by certain people who shall 
remain nameless. Yes. Uh, we gotta. I've. We gotta be friends in Letterpress because because I because I've been slaughtering <laughs> Brian. So. If, if you're tramping Brian, I don't even want to think about what you'll do to me. Uh, time and Although attention. it is an amazingly cool game. It is. Uh, I I I was surprised at uh, the the you know strategy you could have on top of just wanting to think of words. It you know I think I think Gruber coined this. It's called a Smurf. When you when you get the entire when you when you wipe out somebody when you do a blackout, call the Smurf. Yeah, you Smurf them, yeah. Oh yeah, because you're. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, Jim and I are, are are actually mean to each other. I actually have trouble spending time with him in the same place now because the words that we fling at each other are cruel and have all kinds of subtle uh, intent. I don't think they necessarily do, but they definitely come across like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just disavow. They now do for that Brian. Just leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, when, when I spell out weakling and and hopeless and non-erudite, em- embarrassing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uneducated, I don't know how you get all those all those uh, all those words with the same with the same letter set. What else have you been playing, Jim? So I've been, pl- I mean, I, I've still been uh, exploring more iPad games. I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, but Nihil Umbra is a really good, like, super dark. Somewhere between black metal and emo type mood of a game. Uh, also, Waking Mars, which is made by the creators of Spider, which was a game I really liked for uh, iPod Touch. That was a lot of fun. You're you're like a scientist exploring uh, these Martian caverns, which have these little plant aliens that you feed and interact with in different ways. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And then I. St- Played a little bit of Mist, a little bit of Another World, and started playing Aquaria, which I had seen on Steam was only for PC for a while. It looks a little bit involved. I may not want to quite get into it right now, but but who knows? Boy, Waking Mars looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Uh, definitely recommend it. Did probably twelve hours, twelve or fifteen hours. It's. Uh, yeah, it's it looks good, is fun. You don't have to do everything, but it's fun to try to do everything. Nice. Well, uh, you what know, about you? My my friend Will and I have been playing the hell out of uh, Terraria. We've been enjoying that. Oh yeah, you got the server. We got the server. We've been we've been playing it around. Uh, all of all of my other friends have abandoned me in my time of need, but we've really enjoyed uh, you know logging on you know off and on different times and. You know, we sometimes run together, but but more it's sort of, it's it's almost a thrill to log in and see what he's done. Terraria is a, a in a nutshell, two dimensional Minecraft. It's it's a Rorschach test to find out how obsessive compulsive somebody is. So in <laughs> fact, your friend's reactions are generally one of horror. <laughs> well, I I feel a little bit sad inside that that by the time. Uh, I put together a functioning gaming PC. Uh, you you will have moved on. Will you like if if I if I get a PC together in in six months? Will we be able to revisit this? Highly, or will you highly unlikely? You got to get your <laughs> act together, man. Get on the stick. Uh, but you know it's it, I I I talked to you and and Chris Zeroff, uh, what Was it last weekend? I don't even remember. Um, I I've given uh, Tom both barrels on this, and oddly, uh, this is something that. Tobals has been blogging about a lot as well, which is he wrote an article about how there aren't violent games on Facebook, and he wrote an article about the sandbox games and the peril that that comes with. Them. There certainly is a lot of peril that comes with with sandbox games. That, that's 
material for a whole other episode, even though we've talked about this before. The idea of you know doing constructive work and how you create meaning and actual gameplay in a world where you're building stuff. And Minecraft is the you know smash hit example of this because Minecraft is a game that has game elements, but it's also about like making crazy stuff, and that's sort of the more meaningful aspect of it to a lot of people. It's been fun to play around with that and fun to think about what could be improved uh, with the way that these these things are built. I will attempt to get my act together. <laughs> Shouldn't be that hard. Um, well, so we got the holidays coming. This is probably the last podcast where I'm using uh, a Logitech uh, headset mic. No, don't uh, change. We love you just the way you are. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we come back and uh, I'll have a little bit of free time. I'll hook up a PC. Maybe not. <laughs> Um, Will, uh, Paul and I have also been playing a little bit of tanks and get, getting back into that, uh, at least for the next uh, few weeks, I think I'm going to be doing that a little more. Tom, you and I had a session the other day and it's still a fun game to play. It is. I also, uh, Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition came out on iPad and I got that and have been trying it and it isn't doing for me what it did the first time when I played it on PC, sadly. I, I also never played that on PC, and lots of people talked to me about it. It was an awesome game. I, I just don't – I'm just not clear it translates well to, to the touch uh, interface on, on the iPad. There are things about it that, that leave me cold. <laughs> you know, the uh, – uh, we just talked about World of Tanks. Actually um, – some some people in the office who uh at least one of which has listened to our podcast inspired the other to play World of Tanks and he he gave his feedback he said he he logged on uh he uh he rode a tank around a building he got in a shootout with uh, someone and then died and then was surprised that he had to wait a long time well that's because he's not playing it right <laughs> it's sort of the the idea is you have five or six tanks in your stable and you just keep keep shotgunning them as as they die but yeah you guys have, but our podcast, you, you've talked about World of Tanks enough that you have inspired at least one person to try playing it. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that we have at least one listener. That's fantastic. Yeah. It, and he wasn't even a listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody listened once. Yeah. That, that's good to know. Uh, but I think that's uh, that's episode 12, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a good um, evening. You too. You too. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. We'll be taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back in January. Thanks for listening.